but it still took four days into that third trip. So we had spent, you know, 13 or 14 full days of hunting mountain lions with dogs, you know, and to be to finally be successful. And so it changed my whole impression of hunting with dogs. Like, you know, my ideal preconceived notion was that you turn these dog loose, dogs loose out of the truck and they run and put, put a cat up in a tree and you walk up and shoot it. And it's like nothing could be further from the truth. From the truth. We worked our butts off. This is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get up there! Yeah! Get him! Yeah! Good boy! Good boy, Uniting houndsmen across the globe, from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days? How many days a week you spend out As much as I can, to be honest with you. Any time that I get, I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else. I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not. So you might as well be here. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of the Houndsman XP Podcast. This is a bonus edition. It's coming out on a Friday, and it's right on the heels of our trip to Nashville, Tennessee for the Safari Club International Convention. We've got a man by the name of Bob Newland, who is going to be our guest on this podcast. Bob is the president of the Lehigh Valley chapter of Safari Club International. He's hunted all over the world. He's hunted um, a lot in the United States as well. He's an author. He wrote a book called Following Footsteps. Thanks, Dad, for making me a hunter. And you can find that book on Amazon by searching Following Footsteps by Bob Newland. We cover all that in the podcast. But Bob is not a houndsman. He doesn't identify as a houndsman, but he has a very high respect for houndsmen and the way i got to meet bob was very unique we um, were on the floor of the show he has worked with wade hollerman in the past and wade has done some stuff for the sci chapter out there been out there for the banquet i guess uh, i'm not exactly sure i think that's what i was told but anyway bob uh, was looking for a way to support initiative 91 in colorado and we're working on that but through the conversation with bob i found out that this guy 
had a very good story about a, being a, a hunter and the influence his dad had on his life and he had a very unique perspective and some preconceived ideas about hound hunting until he went on his first lion hunt and bob tells us the story and uh, it's just it's just a great story i'm so glad that we can find people who aren't houndsmen but help us carry the message out to the masses and debunk some of these theories about ah it's easy it's not fair chase you know hunting with dogs gives you an unfair advantage bob is going to dispel all of those rumors in this podcast i can't wait for you to hear this one all right before we get to the podcast i've got to give you this alert 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 after march 1st this feed if you're listening through sportsman's empire you will no longer be able to listen here okay what I need for you to do before you listen to any more of this podcast is to stop it. I need you to go f- to your podcast app. If it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever, I want you to treat that search bar up at the top like a search engine. And I want you to type in Extreme Performance Outdoor Network. And that Extreme Performance is spelled with an X. X-T-R-E-M-E performance outdoor network you will see our own network pop up you're going to see all of the shows pop up you're going to see the houndsman xp podcast the journey the dogmen all mixed up all the shows that we have to offer are going to auto populate it's going to be like google you're going to do a google search in your podcast app so just think of it as google go in your podcast app search extreme performance outdoors and pick up the new feed after march 1st if you're listening on the old feed this one is not going to exist anymore there will be no new material here i want to thank dan johnson and sportsman's empire for helping us all these years of building this podcast i want to thank all of you who have supported us all these years by listening to our podcast and um Man, we got a great future ahead of us. We're going to be adding some shows on the new network coming up in the very near future. So a lot more opportunities for you to hear the things that you love to listen to. The new network and the way we've got it set up now is you can choose which podcast you want to follow. If you don't want to listen to me every week, then don't. If you want to listen to Heath every week, You can subscribe to his podcast and you can listen to the journey every week and just pick it up wherever. Now, if you subscribe to the Extreme Performance Outdoor Network, then all of the shows will auto-populate just like they always have. It's going to be a real easy adjustment for you to keep up with the number one podcast talking about the things we love, hunting and hunting with hounds. The Houndsman XP Podcast is underway. This is a box shaker. Let's get the tailgate down. It's time to dump the box. The Houndsman XP podcast is fueled by Joy Dog Food. Joy Dog Food has a rich tradition of supporting the Houndsman of America. Founded in 1945, Joy is proud of its history and the relationship it has built with the American Houndsman. And in 76 years, there's never been a recall. Made with 100% American-made high-quality ingredients, Joy Dog Food has one of the highest calorie-dense formulas on the market. 
For 76 years, this Made in America product has kept hunting dogs in the field day after day, season after season. And when we say Made in America, Joy has a long track record of fighting for American freedoms by being on the front lines against the animal rights movement and their extremist tactics. Joy will fuel your hounds and fight for your freedoms, fueled by Joy. Better burn that. We'll cut that first part out. I guarantee it. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So last week or a couple weeks ago, uh, I got the opportunity to go to the Safari Club International Convention in Nashville, Tennessee, and um, you know this is just one another one of those contacts I made. It was very unassuming, and uh, we were actually at. Uh, uh, Wade Holloman's booth, and I think I got summoned to the booth actually to come over and and talk to this this gentleman. And I'm I'm honored to have uh, Bob Newland, who is the president of Safari Club International chapter in Lehigh, Pennsylvania, the Lehigh chapter. Is that Lehigh accurate? Valley. Lehigh yeah. Valley. I didn't say Valley because that I thought that might be. Um, I know there's a big muzzleloader. That's a very traditional type area. And when I was shooting uh, muzzleloading rifles and stuff, Lehigh Valley has a whole flintlock culture there too. It does, right? Yeah, I've heard yeah. that before. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's even it's Pennsylvania. I think is about the only state left in the union that has um, flintlock only traditional muzzleloading season. I know they have one. I don't know mm-hmm. if they're the only state or not, but I know they have one. I'm yeah. pretty sure they are. Well, Bob, welcome to the podcast. I was really excited to, to talk to you. You know, we started talking about the funny thing is this is why, um, Safari club international is so important. You being a chapter president, you were looking for an opportunity to, uh, do an auction item at your upcoming banquet, uh, for SCI. And then as we're talking, I find out that you've got a lot of, you've got a really cool story. I was wanting to tap into. Okay. And, uh, uh, kind of set this up before we get to it. Um, I always like getting people on here that aren't necessarily houndsmen, uh, but they. I like getting your perspective on on what it's like to hunt with hounds and different things like that. And and you wrote a book about your hunting life called Following Footsteps. And um, I just want to dive into all of it. So let's let's sure. start out with let's start out with your involvement with Safari Club International. You know, as a chapter president, you know, what kind of things are you bringing to your your local um, community there with with SCI? All right. Well, uh, I joined. Uh, well, I start at the beginning. I, I took my first trip to uh, South Africa about, uh, I don't know, it was nine or 10 years ago. My wife and I went on our first safari, our first international hunt. And we came back and it was about six months later, I got an invitation in the mail to the Lehigh Valley chapters banquet that they hold every March. And uh, I had really no experience at all with SCI before that, uh, but decided let's go and check it out, see what it's all about. And I was just blown away by the camaraderie and, and uh, just being in the room with, with 300 people that all shared the same passions that I have for hunting and, and that sort of thing. And so uh, I made a decision. I wanted to get more involved. 
Uh, and the next year came around and we went to the banquet again. And I was invited to sit at the board of directors table. Uh, why? I don't know. But they, they <laughs> something I said to them, I guess they liked. Uh, so I like this guy. This guy is an easy mark. We could probably get some work out of him. <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Yeah. So I sat at their table and, and, you know, shortly after that, I made application to the board and, and joined the board. And I spent six years on the board being their auction chairman, where I was responsible for doing exactly what you saw me doing, talking to people like Wade to try to get donations for the chapter uh, where we can auction these items off and, and raise some money for conservation and hunter advocacy. And uh, we have a huge youth uh, activities program. We have a, a big veterans program and the money that we raise at this auction is what supports all of that. So uh, I'm in my third year now as chapter president. Um, never had any aspiration to be president, but just one of those things kind of fell into place. And um, I got to say, it's been one of the most rewarding things I've done in my uh, in my life has been representing this chapter because it is a great group of people that do an awful lot. And we are one of the more active chapters. So um, like I said, we raise money for veterans, uh, for the youth to try to keep the youth involved and and the future of our sport, right? It, it, it hinges on the youth. So if we don't get them out uh, experiencing the outdoors and away from their iPads and their phones, um, you know, it, I have a real concern about the future of hunting. Um, yeah, so those are some of the things that we're involved in. Yeah, that's, uh, there's a lot to digest right there. I don't sure. think we can even break down everything that that uh, SCI does in just a short podcast and talk about right. anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the, the community chapter model, you know, it's certainly not exclusive to SCI, National mm -hmm. Wild Turkey, Ducks Unlimited, all those sort of stuff. But, yeah. you know, for, for me, uh, you know, that chapter, local chapter management business model type thing is is very valuable because it it brings the organization down to the grassroots level you know mm -hmm. it's it's guys can can find the value of belonging to a bigger organization uh, maybe they're never going to be able to go to S south africa or you know to spain or wherever to to hunt the ibex i see behind you there uh, but you know they can still find a place where they can be involved and work for the for the benefit of hunting and the future of hunting sure sure we the, our our chapter uh, in particular is very active in uh uh helping to get the the sunday hunting uh approved in pennsylvania there was no hunting allowed in pennsylvania on sundays mm -hmm. now they're making progress with that uh we have success in new jersey helping to get the black bear hunt back opened up again. So that's the advantage of the local chapters. I mean, the national organization does tremendous things too, but on a local level, you know, we're, we're able to stay more, I think, in touch with these, these issues that, uh, that are affecting, you know, the everyday person that hunts in, in Pennsylvania or New Jersey. Yeah. Can, can you just kind of break it down a little bit for us? Uh, you know, the difference between the mission of the local chapter versus the overarching international mission of the, uh, the the i don't do you call it the international chapter the main Not just national the, national the organization yeah. yeah yeah okay i don't know that our mission is much different i think they're you know the mission of them would probably be very similar the, uh, identical i think it's just that 
uh, obviously we have a, a vested interest in what's going on locally, you mm -hmm. know, so we're, we're more in tuned and more apt to pick up on that stuff because we live here, right? So we, we pick up on what's going on on a local level and we address, we are, direct our attention to that. Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't say we don't direct our attention on a national level. Also, the, the, the purpose for me talking to Wade Holliman was asking him, you know, for a donation. I wanted to earmark that donation and, and send that money to this uh, Save the Hunt program to, to fight this uh, legislation that's coming up about banning mountain lion hunting and, and bobcat hunting. And, you know, I want to make sure that we're doing our part to, to fight that battle as well. Right. Uh, that's how I was introduced to you. Yeah, it was, um, we just had, had a, a strategy meeting on that. And, and one of the things that Dan Gates reported on was the, the groundswell from the, the chapters of Safari Club International and how yes. much support they're throwing at this. And, mm -hmm. and, um, we've talked about it. I'm sure my, my listeners are, are thinking, oh, here we go again. We're talking about initiative 91, but daggone it, man, if, if, we got to decide where we're going to drive the stake in the ground mm -hmm. and and what line we're not going to allow people to cross. And I think our, our community is is ready for that. They're ready. You know, they're they're fed up with with getting unreasonable policies and emotional based science based or ballot box biology shoved down their throat. Mm -hmm. And we're also recognizing that. Man, if we allow it to happen here, then it can come here. It can, it, you know, it's like a disease. It'll just spread. Yeah, that's what struck me most when when it was brought up to us at the board meeting uh, at National. Uh, that's what struck me the most is the the potential for this to spread into other states and start affecting things in other states as well. So it's important mm -hmm. that we fight these battles as they come up. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, if as the president of a local chapter. Why, um, why should a guy like me, a houndsman, you know, I've never hunted internationally. Um, you know, why would a guy like me want to join or need to join a local SCI chapter? Like I said, I'm a, I'm a member of the, the national organization, mm -hmm. but I'm not involved or specifically a member of any local chapter. Well, I'll get you an application then. <laughs> I'm, it'd be a little far for me to get to the meetings from here, but I know there is a Northern Kentucky chapter. Yeah. Well, the, uh, I, I think for me, uh, the, the, the two biggest things are what I already mentioned or touched on there is, is that, that feel for what's going on on a local level and having that battle fought here on a local level and not just on a national level that I, th I, I like to have, uh, some influence on what's going on locally more than uh, just the national chat uh, organization does. That's that's the first piece of it. But the second piece of it is I enjoy the camaraderie of it. You know, I really mm -hmm. do. I enjoy getting together with all these like-minded hunters and conservation-oriented people that that you know share ideas and just share stories and you know just sit down and have a beer together and you know, you know chew the fat kind of thing. Uh, so. For me, that that makes it what it's like the like your local gun club that you might belong to, or or you know, you know that that you, you you spend time with these. I enjoy spending time with these people, so that's a big part of it too. Right, 
And I feel like I'm I'm giving back and, and it's easier to give back on a local level than it is on a national level where, it, you know, it involves traveling all over the country. Not only that, but I think, um, you know, you feel like you're you're pushing this money up the chain and you don't really see the work locally. And, and mm -hmm. it can be a little bit discouraging when sure. when that sort of a, a thing happens. So, um yeah. So I wanted to ask you this, you know, I think over the years, I'll just talk from my personal experience. I always kind of felt like that the, the SCI, that SCI was kind of above my pay grade, you know, mm -hmm. it was kind of out of reach for me. Um, when I started dealing with SCI and talking to the leadership and then when I got to the convention this year, this was the first convention I attended. I found out real quick that these guys are just hunters. Yeah. 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 Safari club has this in image of the, called the good old boys club, you know? Um, and, and I think uh, they, they hear that word safari in the middle of the name mm -hmm. and it makes people automatically think about elaborate African safaris, but that's, that's yeah, I think I needed a, a, a gold, engraved side-by-side -side rifle and wear khaki shorts and, uh, you know, yeah. stuff yeah. like that. And, and no. I just, I, I guess what I'm trying to do here is set up and, and tell people it's like, man, this is a great organization. And if you haven't looked into it, it's not beyond your reach. Hunter first for hunters, first for hunting. I saw that all over, or what is yes. it? First for hunters, first for wildlife. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Those two, yeah, those two things seem to be the driving principle they and it's really just are. hunters. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly there's a lot of issues that take place on the international, you know, scene with, with importing, you mm -hmm. know, animals and things like that from other countries. So yeah, there's a lot that goes into fighting those battles too, but there's a lot that's going on fighting the battles just here in the United States as well, you know, in Alaska in Colorado in, in Jersey, Pennsylvania, all over the country, uh, Louisiana with the black bear hunt you know, uh, right. So yeah, SCI is involved in all that. And that, that you know, that that's uh grassroots kind of hunting, you know, that, you know, your everyday guy is, is doing, you know? So. Yeah. A lot of times you see stuff pop up about, you know, the import of, of leopards from, from sure. Africa and people think, well, I'll never hunt a leopard. Right. But when we're talking international, you're talking about, you know, importing, going to, going to Mexico and hunting a mountain lion and trying to get it back to the States. You're talking about going to Canada and hunting a bobcat or a black bear or whatever, and, sure. and trying to get that wildlife back to the state and SCI is on the, on the cutting edge, the tip of the spear for, mm -hmm. you know, fighting those and making sure that hunters retain their freedoms to go international to hunt because all those things, if you, if you allow it to, to take hold there, State governments follow federal government. Some of it's because of funding. Some of it's because political pressure. Uh, you know, threats of losing state funding, things like that. Hey, you know, if you want to, if you want to continue to do this, you need to back us on the the international import deal. And blah blah blah. And then before you know it, you can't transport a black bear from Virginia to Indiana. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very true. Yeah, international isn't all just about Africa mm -mm. You know, safaris. Uh, you know, like you said, it's it's Mexico and Canada too. Which, you know, driving across the border to hunt black bear in, in Canada is not that expensive of a hunt. It's not something that you know is out of people's reach. Right. So, yep. For sure.
for sure. Well, one of the things that um, I, I wanted to talk to you about for sure um, was this book that you wrote, Following Footsteps. I want to get into your history of hunting okay. and and how you dedicated, and we'll ultimately get to the the story that you dedicated a whole chapter to, and we'll pick, we'll we'll break that down too. All right. So tell right. us about following footsteps. So uh, I had the the great fortune of being born into a family of hunters and fishermen that that lived the outdoor lifestyle. My father, my grandfather, my uncles, uh, everybody enjoyed the outdoors, and so. Uh, the opening chapters of my book talk about how I grew up at, at age uh, at age of four. I was out on my father's fishing boat with him and his father, you know, uh, out on the ocean fishing. And, uh, you know, they, they would joke that I could walk on water before I could walk on dry land, you know. So, um, but then probably I, to your grandpa, you probably could. Yeah. 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 Probably but your I, grandmother, I, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I lost my my dad at a at a very young age. He was only forty one when he passed, mm. and uh, it had a it had a dramatic effect on my life and and caused me to you know pull away from the things that I used to do because honestly, it just wasn't the same anymore. Um, and then I got to a point where I had my own children, and I wanted them to experience that outdoor lifestyle too. So that <clears throat> that pulled me back into hunting and fishing and. And um, it was that first trip to Africa with my wife that got me hooked on international travel and, and doing some of that as well. And so following footsteps. Can I um, jump in here and ask you a question? Yeah, shoot. So so at what age, uh, how old were you when you took a break from hunting and how old were you when you decided to get back into it? I was 18 when my father died. Okay. And, um, I started hunting again, probably around 23. Okay. In, in that age, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't decades, but it was, mm -hmm. it was just a break, you know, it, right. it, sitting in a deer stand by myself at that point, just, it wasn't enjoyable for a while. You know? Yeah. You so, needed to just digest the situation and, yeah. and uh, yeah, I get it. But uh, you know, time heals everything and, and, you know, you move on. Right. And, um, and so I wrote the book, for a couple of reasons. <clears throat> I wanted to pay tribute to my father and my grandfather, and I wanted to establish something that <clears throat> down the road, my children and their children and their, their children's children would, would know me and what I did. Yeah. And so it was uh, a like, a, like a legacy. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, I, and it's a little emotional topic for me still. So. Sure. <laughs> well, I won't. I won't be like Barbara Walters and just see if I can get you to cry on camera. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate that. <laughs> That's not the goal here. Yeah. Uh, so, what sort of things are in the book? I don't. I won't ask you to divulge. You know things. Yeah. Yeah. The book's been out. The book's been out a couple of years already. Um, there's there's a couple chapters devoted to conservation and, and local New Jersey hunting, whitetails in Jersey. Uh, and then there's chapters devoted to different adventures that I've gone on uh, around the world. You know, I've been mm -hmm. fortunate that I've been able to do some traveling. And my, I'm fortunate that I married a woman who enjoys coming along with me. She's not so 
uh, keen on, on shooting herself, killing animals herself, but she enjoys coming with me and walking along while we're, you know, on safari or, or on a hunting trip someplace. So, uh, you know, we, we've done uh, New Zealand together and we've done Africa a couple of times now and um, Spain. So there's, mm-hmm. there's chapters devoted to each of those, uh, those hunting trips. Um, and I said, there's a, there's a chapter devoted to conservation and, and hunting, hunting's role in conservation and, and how important hunting is to conservation and, and the, the money that's raised through hunting, funding uh, conservation. Uh, um, you know, that's a big part of it. And, and then there's, I, I also incorporated some things in there about the humanitarian stuff that we try to do when we're on these hunting trips, feeding, feeding the hungry and, and, um, providing school supplies and stuff like that from the privileged children while we're, while we're on the, uh, on the adventures. So let me ask you, since you've engaged in both sides of that, not only the hunting, but the humanitarian side too, you know, we often hear the uh, message about the value of wildlife in Africa Mm -hmm. and how the local economy is so is very dependent on the hunting industry in Africa. And especially, sure. you know, South Africa. Sure. Can you can you speak a little bit about that? Some of your experience. Sure. Sure. I th- I, well, one of the one of the keys to it is that hunting gives the the wildlife in Africa value. So the farmers, you know, who are in competition with the wildlife for for grazing, you know, they the, mm-hmm. they're willing to tolerate the animals there a little bit better if they know that 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 brings them a stream of revenue because some hunter is willing to pay to come over and hunt that inyala. So, okay, maybe I'll tolerate him in my fields, you know, competing with my cattle for, for grazing, you know, because I know that there's some income that's going to be derived from that. So, so it, it, hunting directly gives value to the animals that are over there. So they're, they're protected. They're not, you know, there's a big anti-poaching, you know, force that goes into protecting that wildlife that's over there. And, and, and like I said, the, the, the farmers are willing to tolerate it more too, because there's income coming from it. Um, that's key. Uh, the other piece of it is, how many people are employed by these hunting lodges in Africa? There's housekeeping people, there's trackers, there's skinners, there's, you know, cooks, there's groundskeepers. You know, there's a tremendous amount of employment provided by these hunting lodges in Africa. And that that's funded through hunting dollars, you know? So um, yes, Africa depends on the, the revenue that comes in from hunting. One of the things that you brought up that, that, kind of tie it all together a little bit i want to dive a little deeper is the the explanation of putting that value on the wildlife Mm. um you know from my research and i've had ivan carter on here gavin lippius grew up in in south africa i've got friends in africa who are houndsmen i talk to them regularly and um you know the, the the thing that ties it all together is if you take out the hunting aspect of it, not only is it going to hurt the economy, it's going to hurt the wildlife because your yes. typical your typical farmer is there. He's got to make a living. So mm-hmm. it, you remove the value from the wildlife, and now there's no reason for him to tolerate that wildlife anymore. So right. when when people try to get this message out here that hunting is harmful to wildlife, you know, it's just simply not true. And I don't think there's any place that that is more af- uh, evident than in Africa. Because sure, those people are like, a cow can, I can make money off this cow if he's grazing here. 
or I can make money off of this honey. And maybe I can do both. Mm-hmm. But you take the value off of one or the other, then then one of the biggest things that I've seen, the biggest threats is the, uh, what they call it? They call it... Um, Oh, uh, the 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 herdsmen that that uh, drive cattle down into um, the national parks and different things that are just overgrazing it. There are actually game rangers and stuff that are in pursuit of these people. Mm-hmm. They're like the reverse of rustlers. They're they're herdsmen that are outlaw herdsmen that drive their cattle around different places for grass, and mm-hmm. they're they're taking they're they're actually in the national park system, and and they're always chasing them out of there. Yeah, you know, I'm not familiar with that. Honestly. I'll, I'll send you a link to that. That was yeah. that was really cool. Is it actually a documentary I watched? It was is really interesting. Again, it put another spin on it and helped me understand. Sure, you know what the value is and what the war is really about. Sometimes yeah. on on some of this stuff, you said exactly what I was trying to say. You just did it more eloquently. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, the the other humanitarian. You you said you help feed feed school kids and yeah. Well, that's that's part of Safari Club International. Also, they have what's called the blue bag program. They, and they, they're large blue duffel bags. Uh, you might have seen pictures of them. They, everybody, they, they, they send thousands of them over there. So you can request them from Safari Club and they'll send them to you for free to your home. And they always fill one of those with some stuff to give over to take over there to give to the kids. So it can be like uh, soccer balls, uh, school tablets, colored pencils and pens. Yeah. Um, you know, flip flops for their feet, you know, th- and any kind of little stuff that they can put in that bag and send it to you. There were ball caps in there and T-shirts and those nylon backpack type of things. So they sent us two of them and we take them over with us. And uh, it's much cheaper to buy things over there than it is to buy it here and bring it with you. So we go to their local store over there. Once we get off the off the airport, the guides are always willing to stop and, and let you shop. And we fill those duffel bags up with school supplies and clothing items and candy and gum, and, you know, what toothbrushes and eyeglasses and whatever we can think You're of. You're buying candy of. and toothbrushes. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> You're going to give them candy. You got to make sure they can clean their teeth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and we fill those duffel bags up. Then, then we always manage to get some of the game meat that we've taken in, in on our hunt and we'll bring the meat over there with the duffel bags. Uh, they'll take us to like an or we've been to orphanages, we've been to schools, um, foster homes, and and if you see how how neglected these kids are, and and you know, and you you bring this stuff in. I mean, I've got a video of my wife and I and the, the children opening up the duffel bags and passing out all of this stuff to them. It, it'll it'll bring a tear to your eye. They're, they are so happy you know, yeah. to have it and receive it. And a lot of times they don't get protein. If it's not for us, the hunters bringing that meat over to them, they, they, they're, they're eating uh, corn maize most of the time. And so that protein that they're getting from those game animals goes a long way to feeding them. You know, and it's, it's something that we've done every time we've gone over there and it, it we always will. It's just the mm-hmm. most, one of the most rewarding experiences you, you'd ever have. Yeah. So. Yeah. So getting back to the book here, following footsteps, um, there was, um, the thing that, the thing that really sparked my interest that got us talking was the one chapter. Mm -hmm. And this is the part where I always like getting the, um, the thoughts and opinions of, of people who aren't houndsmen 
you know, for a houndsman, uh, you know, I've been I've been hunting mountain lions, not seriously, uh, where, just simply because where I lived. If I lived there, it'd be a whole different story. But mm-hmm. you know, almost annually since 1993, and um, in all that time, I've only taken one mountain lion. I've only shot one mountain lion. Um, for the houndsman, for me, it's the dog work. It's it's you know, it's taking. It, it might be a, a a a breeding pair that I that I put together to produce a pup that is going to result in three years to be a hound that I can I can go catch a lion with or a bear or, or a raccoon or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and so the training, the the dogs, the breeding, the science behind all of it, the craft is is what draws me to it and so so the the hunt in and of itself for me is completely different and sometimes i get lost in that and it's always refreshing to hear somebody who's not a houndsman and see their perspective and hear their experiences and the worst thing for me and i've taken several people the worst thing for me is to take somebody who's never gone that says i just want to kill a bear or i just want to kill a lion and um I like for it to suck for him a little bit. I like for it to, 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 I like for him to earn it. You know, yeah. the worst thing yeah. is to, to have a slam dunk, but I right. tell those people, it's like the reason it looks so easy is because Wade Hollerman made it look easy. Hunter Meekham, the Whitaker brothers, those guys make it look easy. You don't see all of the years of prep and all that stuff behind it. So when I get a person who's willing to share their experience from the non-houndsman side and then talk about it and then write about it in a book, man, that's gold. So let's talk about your mountain lion hunting experience. All right. So I might get long-winded on this. If I'm, if I'm talking too much, cut me off. I got long-winded setting it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the chapter you're referring to is called Gramps' Gun. And uh, it, I, I always kind of viewed hunting uh, bear or mountain lion, you know, with dogs as kind of almost, I, I don't want to call it, say I thought it was unethical, but I had my, I, I just didn't feel like it was necessarily fair to the animal. You know, that was my initial concept of the whole thing. You know, you're, you're carrying then, the ball uh, in the right direction here, Bob. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Say that again. I, I said, you're carrying the ball in the right direction. This All is right, why I wanted okay. to talk to you. All right. So, yeah. So, um, so I thought, well, I got to do something to make this more challenging than just, you know, going up there and shooting. So I, I, I thought I would do, you know, do the hunt with my bow and arrow, at least make it an archery hunt, little, little extra challenge to the, mm-hmm. to the process. Um, I booked my hunt. And I, I booked it in, it was late in the, uh, in the mountain lion season. There was no snow on the ground anymore. It was dry dirt hunt. We were in the book cliff mountains and we spent uh, five or six days on mules riding up and down the book cliff mountains. Oh my God. We, we rode my, my rear end was, was sore for a month. Um, we ran a couple of cats. Yeah. We ran a couple of cats, but we, we either ran out of daylight or, or they got onto an Indian reservation uh, mm-hmm. where we could go in. Um, and I spent five, six days there and, and had nothing to show for it. Didn't even, you know, um, but I look back up a second. I was going to do it archery. I, I, my grandfather gave me his lever action, uh, 30, 30, his Marlin before he passed away. And I, I had it in my gun safe for years. 
And I always thought I'd like to shoot something with that animal, with that gun, just to kind of pay tribute to my my grandfather and, mm -hmm. and you know, build on that connection a little bit, I guess. Sure. And so I, I abandoned the archery idea and I said, this is the perfect opportunity to use a 30-30. It's not a rifle that I really would use for much else. So it was, it was a good opportunity to use it. So and you so took the rifle with you on the first hunt? I did. I took the okay. rifle. Yeah. And it ran in the ran, rode in the scabbard of that mule, you know, for all those days and never got pulled out once. Uh, <laughs> I brought it <laughs> home with me. And uh, I talked to the outfitter and I, uh, I rescheduled for the following year to give it another try. And I said, but I'd like to come earlier in the season. Maybe we get some snow on the ground. So we, we set it up and I went back the second year and I spent five or six more days. Can I, uh, can I ask some questions about the first yeah. hunt? Yeah, go right ahead. Just some, I, I just kind of want to uh, pick your brain and and maybe get some deeper story about that. So, um, in your preparation for the hunt, did you know you were going to be riding mule? I, he, he, I had discussed with him how it would be, and it would either be riding or on mm -hmm. mules, or it would be walking and you know some truck work too. Yeah. So, so what did you do to prepare yourself for riding a mule? through the book cliff mountains from new jersey i did nothing i probably should <laughs> maybe i should have done something but i did i didn't do anything i isn't that crazy before. i'm sorry uh, isn't it wild how i mean i haven't i have not ridden i rode a little bit last year just for a few you know not very much but uh -huh. but i used to ride a lot yeah. and and even now just an hour or so of riding man it 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 hurts you, you <laughs> when you ride all the time yeah. You know, then then your muscles and your joints and everything get used to it and, and things like that. But just going in cold right. like you did. Yeah. You're in for some you're in for some some punishment. Yeah. I've ridden before. I've done other hunts in Montana where I rode horseback mm -hmm. into the mountains and also I'm familiar with riding. I'm comfortable riding. Sure. Um, but it's not certainly not something I do regularly, that's for sure. Right. Right. And I, I felt it. I felt it. So what was your um did you did you run any lions? Did you chase any lions on your first hunt? We did. We ran. We cut some tracks. We put the dogs on them. We 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 ran them, but never never laid eyes on them. Never caught mm -hmm. up to them before we either ran out of daylight or or they they made it where we couldn't go. Uh, so yeah, we ran some cats. Just didn't have any luck. And and what was your experience with the houndsmen as far as? Uh, the way they interact on the first time, what were your initial reactions to the way the houndsmen interact with their hounds? Uh, um, I guess we can start right there. Um, well, I was impressed with the dogs. I mean, they're, they're mm -hmm. great, you know, great dogs. I, I, I don't know that I uh, took anything away from it with how he interacted with them mm -hmm. in particular, but I enjoyed watching them and, and watching them go up the, uh, the sides of those cliffs and you know, the drive, the on heart. Rock, yeah. On top of this rock outcropping, I'm standing up there, you know, where I'd be, I'd be sitting down holding on for dear life. And they're just up there bouncing around from rock to rock, you know, so, right. uh, it's impressive to watch. And I love the sound of the hounds, you know, bawling as they're you know, running around chasing them, you know, but uh, yeah, it was good. I don't know how you could get any more romantic than sitting on a, you know, this romantic vision of chasing a lion than, than sitting out there on a, on a mule and listening to the hounds echoing yeah. through the book cliff mountains. Yeah. It, it's, in, it's incredible. It's a beautiful area too. The country's yeah. beautiful. Too, so yeah. it's, it's good. 
So we yeah. got the first one wrapped up five days, saddle sore, a lot of hound barking, no lion. Yeah. Pretty disappointed. Yeah. But, um, but I, yeah. And, and the JT was the guy that I was hunting with. His name's JT Robbins. Um, he, uh, you know, he kept saying that, you know, that without snow on the ground, it, it's pretty tough to, to cut tracks and, and, you know, get, have success. You know, it, it, the odds of success go down quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, when I came back the next year, I wanted to come earlier in the season and hopefully have some snow on the ground. Uh, so we set it up again. I went back again and, um, wasn't much snow on the ground. <laughs> it was, it was, there was patchy snow here and there, but certainly not enough that we were, uh, you know, tracking cats in the snow. Um, and basically the same results. This time it was a lot of riding in trucks then just staring at the ground out the window as you're riding along, mm-hmm. you know, hoping to cut tracks. And the results were, were similar. We, we ran some cats again, uh, but just never really got, you know, anything treed or got any got close enough to it to uh to be successful um and i walked my rear end off on that one we climbed down some serious cliffs to get you know to keep trailing the dogs and up some serious cliffs it was a very very physical hunt and and again i came home sore and tired and pretty dejected and i was feeling at that point i was emotionally i was feeling like i was letting my grandfather down somehow. <laughs> the, the whole, I had built this up in my mind, yeah. you, know, you know, that the, this is what I had to accomplish. And, you know, I, I was failing, you know, and that, mm. that I'm the kind of person that doesn't sit well with me. So I was driving myself. I, I had to get this done. And so um, <laughs> unbelievable to my wife, but I booked the third trip to go back the following year. Um, and, and the third year, you know, was the charm. We had some snow on the ground. We had a lot of snow on the ground. We ended up mm-hmm. hunting with snowmobiles that time. Um, and it took, but it still took four days into that third trip. So we had spent, you know, 13 or 14 full days of hunting mountain lions with dogs, you know, and to be, to finally be successful. And so it changed my whole impression of hunting with dogs you know my ideal preconceived notion was that you turn these dog loose dogs loose out of the truck and they run and put, put a cat up in a tree and you walk up and shoot it and it's like nothing could be further for the truth from the truth we worked our butts off you know what app i use on my phone more than any other app besides the podcast app to listen to this here podcast i use onyx Onyx Maps is the most comprehensive mapping system for hunters on the market today. I use it all the time. When I was in New Mexico, I was looking at 40,000 acres of ranch that I needed to learn. I flip open Onyx and just start studying, studying the map. When I'm riding trails, I put the tracking app on. It helps me get around in strange country. I could mark water sources, food sources, bear sign, just all kinds of options within Onyx. You need to check out Onyx Maps by going to houndsmanxp.com. Click on the link on our sponsor page. You'll go right to Onyx Maps, and when you check out, enter the code HXP20, and you will get 20% off of your order. Know where you stand with Onyx. 
The Houndsman XP podcast only endorses products that we would use ourselves. And I do use Elite Nutrition supplements. Elite Nutrition offers supplements for your horses, your mules, your dogs, and even you. These all-natural products work with your dog's natural immune system and its normal natural body function, not to treat symptoms, but to fix problems. Stop pumping pharmaceutical toxins into yourself or your dogs and start using these all-natural products that work with the perfect system that God gave you. Go to tryelitenutrition.com and check out their products for wound care, prebiotic, probiotic, puppy stuff. It's all there. Parasite control. If you expect extreme performance, you need Elite Nutrition. Was it a deal where, how far back were you when, when you killed, when you finally got to the tree and killed well, the lion? That's the funny part of it. We, we were on snowmobiles, so we were riding and riding and riding and, and got around the back of this canyon. Um, and then the dogs cut the, we cut the track, the dogs went out and they went down into the canyon and disappeared. And you uh-huh. know, we kept making our way around the ridge to try to get to an area where we could get down to where they went. Um, finally did that made our way down now you know and it, it's deep snow but you know your adrenaline's pumping and you don't even realize that you're trekking through all this snow going down into the canyon and i don't know we probably i was probably back in a half a mile or so maybe and uh the, the cat was treed and no sooner did i walk up to the tree to look up at the cat it jumped and went down the bottom all the way down the bottom of the canyon and then up the other side and uh, it's like the guy, JT, looked at me and said, okay, let's go. We got to go after him again. And like, so, okay, so down down we go all the way to the bottom and then up the other side about halfway. And the dogs had it treed again. And uh, But it was really edgy. He didn't want to take a lot of time and take a chance on it jumping again. So uh, we didn't we didn't mess around for mm-hmm. very long. But I, I, I remember circling around the tree trying to get a, a clear shot at its vitals and I ended up at eye level with it. And it was only, I don't know, maybe 20 feet, 15, 20 feet away from me at eye level snarling at me. And it, it's a, it's a, it's an intimidating animal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's still scary to be at that eye level with it like that. Even, even when you're holding a rifle. Yeah. So if we 15, or, 15 or 20 feet, you're within yeah. his range at that yeah. point. If he decides yeah. to come out of there, he can, he can make that jump to you. Yeah. And, yeah. and were you, was it kind of an awestruck moment where you you finally see this lion knowing that you've worked 14 days and now you're eye to eye? Explain that yeah. feeling you had at that point. I ju- ju- I got to say it was just like pure, pure joy, you know, to be finally, finally it's happening. You know, it's, it's a relief and it's, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's success. You know, you, you're experiencing success, something that you've worked your rear end off for and, you know, you, you finally succeeded in, in accomplishing it. Um, but honestly, I, I think the kill, the killing of the, of the lion is a little anticlimactic. It's everything that leads up to it. That's, that's the, the joy of that hunt. The actual kill is, it is what it is. You killed it. But, but the whole process of leading up to it and, and, and treeing it is, is what, what makes that a great hunt and that I'd love to do again. Yeah. Yeah. So, but to answer your question, so we 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 killed the cat, fell down out of the tree, didn't go far. By the time we skinned it out, uh, cut the meat off of it, packed it, and started walking out, we were we were walking out 
uh, just by the light of our headlamps. It was it was dark out. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized how far back into the mountains we had gone between the snowmobile ride, the hike down and then the hike further down and then the hike up. It took hours to walk back out and the snow, the drifts in the mountains, the snow at times was up to my thighs. So it was it was grueling getting out of there. Sure. Um, and, and the funny I'm going to go on a little further. Funny thing. Oh, absolutely. Happened. Yeah. All right. The funny thing that happened at the end of that was we, we ran these dogs in, in like stages, you know, so that, we, that there were, there was more dogs than we had sleds behind the snowmobiles to take the dogs back out. And it was too far for them to be able to run all the way back to the trucks. So we loaded what we could in the, in the sleds, the boxes that they pulled behind the snowmobiles. And there was one dog left. <laughs> I'm sitting behind JT on the snowmobile and I end up with this dog, hound dog on my lap the whole way back, 45, uh, no, I'm sorry, hour and 45 minute ride on the back of the snowmobile, holding on to this, this hound dog as we're riding in the, in the pitch black uh, yeah, Utah darkness coming out of there. It was, it was awesome. You was developed awesome. your own special relationship with hounds. I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Yeah. He was a good boy too. <laughs> what was that hound's name? I couldn't tell you. Oh. I, I, was, I don't know if I was ever told. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know if you were like sending him Christmas care packages yeah, or anything no, at this point, no, if you guys got that good idea, got that intimate yeah. with him or not. Oh. So, so I ended up writing that article and, and putting it in the book. And it, it is undoubtedly my favorite chapter of the book. Yeah, what, really. what of all the hunting that you've done internationally, there's a couple things. How would you rate? the the lion hunt with hounds hmm. uh, compared to i know every hunt has its own yeah. values and its own but for you to pick that hunt and dedicate a chapter of the book it must have made an impact oh for sure and it's it, a lot of it has to do with the tie to my grandfather and my father uh but also it, it i shot a beautiful cat you know, it, it's gorgeous. It's probably, it's one of my favorite mounts in my, in my trophy room. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I it, it's, I don't know. It's hard for me to say how I would rate it. Cause every, every hunting trip is different. You know, every, mm-hmm. everything there's always, there's different things that I love about hopefully every trip, you know, um, there've been a couple that I didn't really care for at all, but right. <laughs> so right. save that for another podcast. But, uh, as far as it goes, it was a great trip. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's what I was like to say. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you, how would you rate it as far as the physicality, the challenge, the physical challenges of the hunt? Yeah, it was, it's, it's right up there. It, right, right up there between all of the hiking that we did and the, the, the mule riding. Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a very physical hunt if, you know, in, in certain circumstances. I'm sure there are. I'm sure guys have had easier times of it than I did, but the the way mine went down, it was very physical. Now I've done mountain goat hunts in Alaska, in Prince William Sound of Alaska, we're climbing a you know steep mountain. Right. That's pretty physical. I've done doll sheep hunts in the, mm-hmm. in the top Keaton Mountain, same thing, very physical. But this ranked right up there as a as a as a difficult hunt. You know, the Book Cliff Mountains are serious, and and you know we worked our butts off. Yeah. Yeah, that, I've I don't know how many times I've heard been in booths at different conventions like SCI mm-hmm. and and listen to um the the outfitter tell their clients it's like if you come with us 
you got to make sure you need to get on the stairmaster now, you know, and yeah. start getting prepared. Yeah, I wish I had worked out. I wish I had worked out a little bit better before that hunt. Yeah, I didn't prepare as well as I should have. I find myself, um, you know, I have to have to work out regularly here, mm -hmm. just That's as sure. as good as I can. So when I do go west, you know, we're going to be doing a line study in the not too distant future. You know, not only the dogs have to be in shape. I've got to be in shape yeah. as well, you know, better shape than I am. You can't get there sitting in the chair watching, you know, flipping through Netflix. Right. right. You got to dedicate that time. And yeah, um, so where can people find the book? If if somebody's like, man, I want to read, I want to read this book. I want well, to read it for sure. <laughs> they can reach out to me, send me an email. Uh, my email is uh, huntnewland at gmail.com. Um, I'll be happy to send out a copy to whoever would like it. Uh, I it's on Amazon. Uh, okay. you have to search for following footsteps and then put in the, you get a lot of lot comes up in those search results. If you just put following footsteps, but if you put the subtitle in, uh, thank you, dad, for making me a hunter, it'll narrow it down and you'll, you'll come right to the book. What a great title. Thank I found, you. I found it pretty easily on, on Amazon just by, uh, following footsteps by Bob Newland. There you go. And, um, you know, it just, it popped right up. And, um, so there you go. You can, yep. you can find it that easy folks, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, some I'm, my, I'm just, go ahead. Some of my that. best reviews of my book came from non hunters, uh, which surprised me. There were a lot of, uh, people out there who replied back to me and said that they had no idea how much hunting did for conservation. Um, and, and the, the humanitarian stuff that we did. And I got, Tremendous reviews from non-hunters. Hunters liked it too, but the the non-hunters uh, mm -hmm. wrote the nicer reviews. Well, I think yeah. I think we need we need it media positive media, <clears throat> however we can get it as mm -hmm. as hunters for sure. Right, and and something like this is. Um, do I want to use the word palatable? You know, or or you know something when you put a, the humanitarian side in for. And I always compare everything to to my aunt, and she's a great she's a great lady, but she's not a hunter. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, she names the squirrels that are on her feeder and and things like that. Uh, but she always appreciates. Um, she likes factual stuff. She doesn't like like fan. She's not, you know, she doesn't fantasize about what hunting is. She knows what it is. Right. My dad was a hunter. Her dad was a hunter. My grandfather, and. Um, so she's very aware. And when she can pick up a book like that and find the intrinsic values, and it's a lot different than, than how we normally tell our stories just to, to other hunters. I think that's a valuable message to get out there. Yeah. And I think it's, the book is written by just an everyday person. I'm no, you know, I'm no, you know, Jim Shockey or Craig Boddington. There's nothing overly scientific in my writing. It's just, real life experiences, you know, and I think that people like that too. I think that's valuable for sure. You know, it, it you put these people on a pedestal. It's like, well, yeah, Jim Shockey's going to write that about hunting because that's what he's done his whole life. That's how he makes his living. And then you get a guy uh, that loves hunting and is passionate about it and is willing to take the time and the energy to, to, that doesn't hump for a living you know, and gives his perspective on it. I think that's, I think that's awesome, Bob. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So you guys have got a banquet coming up. 
And yeah. uh, what are the dates of your banquet? Uh, March 8th and 9th. Okay. And it takes place at the uh, Delta by Marriott uh, in uh, just outside of Allentown, Pennsylvania. Okay. And where can people find tickets or how do they get involved? If, if we've got people that are listening in, from that area up there, and it's like, man, I'm going to go check this out. The website is LVSCI, Lehigh Valley Safari Club International, LVSCI.org. Okay. And, uh, and make, on there, there's a there's a tab up at the top, banquet. Click on the banquet, and uh, registration is right there. We will put that link in the show notes to this episode down below. So make sure you okay. check out the show notes. You guys should always be checking out the show notes for our shows because we put all kinds of links and discounts and all kinds of stuff in there. So make sure you check it out right below the show notes. There will be a link to Lehigh Valley SCI chapter. This, this year's banquet's uh, pretty special. We have Tom Miranda coming, so he'll be okay. there. He'll, he'll be there for both days of the uh, of the event. Um, there's no bigger name in archery hunting these days than Tom Miranda, um, and he's a very genuine, good you know, good person, down to earth, approachable. He'll you know, he'll spend hours there talking to you. He's a great guy, so he'll be there. We have uh, we have about 120 auction items that'll go off on the live auction over the two days. There's uh, dozens of Chinese auction and silent auction items. There's ra more raffles than you can count. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunities uh, to win some cool stuff. And there's some good, good hunts available for bidding on as well. Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah make sure you check all that out, folks. Uh, Bob, you got anything you want to you want to finish out the podcast with? Any messages to houndsmen out there? Well, I will give cre uh, credit to Jim Shockey for saying one thing. He says, if, if you're a hunter, you should be a member of SCI. Yeah, he says, well, how does he say it? Uh, if, if you're not a member of SCI, you should be. Something along yeah. those lines. <laughs> right. right. So, yeah. 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 SCI is a great organization. Yeah. Jim's been on this podcast. And, has uh, he? Yeah. Yeah. We interviewed Jim. It was last year. We had a discussion about his new book, Call Me Hunter. Yep. Um, we also talked about a lot of other issues and 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 the culture of hunting and what hunting's meant to him throughout his whole life. It was, sure. it was a good discussion. So, um, if you ever get a chance, you should visit his museum, uh, the Hand of Man Museum, Vancouver my, Island. My, my wife took me uh, for my 60th birthday. No kidding. It was phenomenal, and I fortunately Jim was there when I was there, and. Uh, uh, place wasn't real busy that day. He stood there talking to me for over an hour, you know, just very willing to stand and talk, you know, great guy. Yeah. 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 He's been a great ambassador for hunting. That's for sure. sure His has. messaging is right. And, and uh, he represents hunters very well. Yes. So. Agree. Well, Bob, I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. You're up there shoveling snow today and, and trying to get <laughs> things done and it's a work yeah. day and, and everything. So I, I truly appreciate you sharing your story and your insights on, on hunting. I hope there's a lot of people, um, that aren't necessarily houndsmen that'll listen to this and, and get your perspectives on hunting. You can follow, you can find following footsteps by Bob on Amazon. Like I said, just when you go on Amazon, just type in following footsteps by Bob Newland. And it pops right up for you. And uh, yeah, appreciate it, man. Hey, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. You know, you never know who you're going to run into when you go to these conventions. 
Well, I didn't expect to walk away invited on a podcast. That's, that was- <laughs> you should, I need to, I should have uh, given you that, that uh, warning when we first shook hands. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Houndsman XP podcast. I really appreciate every one of you tuning in every week and uh, make sure you check out our show notes. Seriously. I mean, we've, we've got links to our Patreon accounts, our sponsors. Uh, one of the things that we're pushing right now it, for CRWM and the, the mountain lion bobcat hunting band in Colorado is our joiner join die series. And it's a, it's a hoodie and a sweatshirt. It's, it's very well designed and uh, good quality stuff. And we're donating all those profits to CRWM because we're serious about this fight too. And if it wasn't for great organizations like Safari Club International and the groundswell from all these private chapters, we wouldn't have a chance to win. So I appreciate the effort of all you hunters that are members of SCI and every other conservation organization that's, that's in this fight. Secure the freedoms of hunting. Until next time, that's going to do it for this one. This is Fair Chase.